Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, the book of Revelation, chapters 14 and 15. Before we complete Revelation chapter 14 and then move on into chapter 15, I I, I want to briefly highlight what we covered towards the end of the last lesson, not only because of the importance of what it says, what it means to all believers, but it also sums up what this ministry, Seed of Abraham Ministries, is all about. The focus is on verse 12. So go to Revelation chapter 14. Take a look at verse 12. I'm going to give you a second to get there. This is important. Revelation 14 verse 12. Now, because this verse carries such an impact for followers of Christ, now and always, I'm going to give it to you in a number of different Bible versions. Probably one of these will be one that you have in your hand. Because I want you to see there is no issue among Bible translators as to the meaning. Starting right off with our complete Jewish Bible. This is when perseverance is needed on the part of God's people. Those who observe His commands and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. In the King James, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The NAB, here is what sustains the holy ones who keep God's commandments and their faith in Jesus. The the, uh, New American Standard. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The new King James. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And finally, Young's literal translation, which I recommend you all get. um, Because it, it things can sound kind of strange, all right, but they pay very close attention to tense. And that matters a lot in the Bible. Here is the endurance of the saints. Here are those keeping the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. I want you to notice the consistency and the lack of ambiguity in all of these translations. It is that God's people, believers, are here described as those who keep God's commandments and their faith in Jesus. It is often said, erroneously, that in the New Testament when we hear the word commandments that it's no longer referring to the law of Moses or even the Ten Commandments. Rather, it means Jesus' commandments. Even if that were the case, which it's not, Here the commandments are specifically said to be God's commandments. And an obedience to them is coupled with, in the next phrase, faith in Jesus. So as we regularly find in Revelation, God is spoken of separately from Yeshua. Or better, God the Father is spoken of separately from God the Son. So clearly the term God's commandments is speaking of the law. The commandments that God gave to Moses. Intellectual honesty demands it can be nothing else. Now once again, this comports perfectly with what Christ told us in Matthew 5 when he instructed that not only did he not abolish the law, but that he also fully expects his followers to obey the law and to teach others to do so. So let me emphasize that obeying the law does not bring us salvation. 
Only trust in Messiah, Yeshua, can do that. However, as Christ so carefully and explicitly explains in His Sermon on the Mount, our trust in Him ought to enable a deeper devotion within us to obey His Father's commandments. The law of Moses. That ought to be the result of our Christian faith. And the extent to which we intend to obey them, and we actually do obey them, this is going to determine where we fit in a societal or social hierarchy of God's kingdom. Will we be placed among the greatest of God's holy ones or among the least of God's holy ones? But here in Revelation we also find out that our acceptance and our understanding of the law and the prophets is going to have much to do with how God views us and how well our faithfulness towards Him bears up in the end times as the persecutions against us increase in their intensity. No doubt, we're not able to fulfill the law in modern times to the extent that it could be done in ancient times, at least partially because there is no temple and no priesthood. God knows this. So our job as believers is to try to conform ourselves and our behavior to the intent or the spirit of each law and especially when doing the letter of that law is highly impractical within our culture, perhaps illegal or maybe even impossible, we look to the spirit of the law. Let's continue with Revelation 14 by rereading those final passages. We're going to start at verse 13. Verse 13 of Revelation chapter 14. Hopefully you're already there, but if not, it's page 1546 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. So Revelation 14, starting at verse 13. Next I heard a voice in heaven. It was saying, Write, how blessed are the dead who die united with the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, now they may rest from their efforts, for the things they have accomplished follow along with them. And then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, and he shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap. Because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. And the one sitting on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And then out from the altar went yet another angel who was in charge of the fire. And he called in a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle. Gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because they're ripe. The angel swung his sickle down onto the earth and he gathered the earth's grapes and he threw them into the great winepress of God's fury. The winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridles for 200 miles. Verse 13 says that the dead in the Lord, more specifically referring to those who die in the end times, are actually blessed. They're blessed because, continues this verse, now they can rest from their efforts. And since the previous couple of verses dealt with the severe persecutions and temptations that believers are going to be under, in the end times, especially when the Antichrist begins to rule, then verse 13 is in reference to those sufferings. Bottom line, death will be a welcome respite for God worshippers 
because of what's going to happen to us on earth. Beginning with the issue of being required to wear that number 666 on our bodies or being prohibited from buying and selling in what no doubt will be a government-controlled cashless society. Now I want to pause for a moment to point out something that I've spoken about before, but it's appropriate in this context to bring it up again. Clearly the tribulation that believers are undergoing in these passages in Revelation during the time the Antichrist is in power, it's, it's horrific. I mean, it's a, a, a time when death will be a welcome thing for Christ's followers. So what happened to the rapture? According to the dispensational pre-tribulation rapture adherence, a doctrine that's so well accepted throughout modern Christianity, believers shouldn't even be around to be suffering these degradations and pain. What happened to the rapture? Yet these passages clearly show believers alive suffering during this time as they receive encouragement from God to persevere through all this. See, this is one of several reasons that I cannot accept the notion of a pre-tribulation rapture that just whisks believers away to heaven in order to avoid suffering at the hands of evil men. We've read several passages now that directly addresses the suffering of believers before and during the time of the reign of the Antichrist. Couldn't be more specific. The principle I go by is this. God saves his people that he deems innocent from the wrath that he pours out from heaven. But he does not tend to save those same people from oppression, from suffering caused by rampant evil on earth. Rather, the Lord tends to see such oppression and persecution as an opportunity, interestingly enough. An opportunity for us to witness to our faith. For us to be refined in the fire of our sufferings, as was our Savior. So I cannot see God rapturing away believers any sooner than just before the sixth seal judgment. It is possible that perhaps the believers we're reading about in chapter 14 are new believers that have come to faith after the rapture. It's not, not impossible. But nothing has even been hinted at such a thing. So that's just speculation. Or more likely, that sort of speculation is an attempt to make the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine workable. I mean, so what I counsel is the same thing that the prophets and even Christ himself counseled. Be prepared. Go with the Boy Scout motto. Be prepared. Be spiritually and mentally prepared to face even the worst. And you know, if it turns out that God's mercy we are lifted off this planet and we're not required to face the holocaust of men's evil that's coming, then hallelujah! But if we're not removed and instead remain to go through it, like these verses sure seem to be telling us that's the case, then we will have been equipped to endure and to not question or stumble in our faith. Now verse 14 says that John now sees one like a son of man, Yeshua, the Lamb, 
coming on a cloud. Now this, of course, references the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept watching the night visions. When I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man, he approached the Ancient One and he was led into his presence. And to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his rulership is an eternal rulership. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now interestingly, we also find this thought in the Gospel of Mark. However, it's much more directly associated to the end of days. In Mark 13, verses 21 through 27, we read this. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or says, see, there he is, don't believe him, there will appear false messiahs and false prophets performing signs and wonders for the purpose if possible of misleading the chosen but you watch out because I've told you in advance in those days after that trouble the sun will grow dark the moon will stop shining the stars will fall out of the sky the powers in heaven will be shaken then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with tremendous power and glory and he will send out his angels and gather together his chosen people from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven now notice here in Mark all the things that are going on at the time that the Son of Man comes in the clouds. Watch out, we're told, around that time. There's going to be a false Messiah. Don't believe him. Who else can this be but John Seabeast, the Antichrist? There's going to be major cosmic disturbances. And it is during this time that God is going to send out His angels to gather His chosen people from all over the earth. So this passage from Mark fits hand in glove with John's apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic visions that we're reading. So besides wearing a crown to indicate His, his glory as King over God's kingdom, we find the Son of Man who comes in the clouds has a sickle in his hand. And a sickle is used for harvesting what has grown and what has ripened. Yeshua, interestingly, does not begin harvesting until an angel gives the order. We have to remember, angels do not act on their own authority. They are God's servants and seem to be mostly used as messengers of God's oracles. In fact, the Hebrew word that we translate into English as an angel is malach. It literally means messenger. So here we find once again that the Son of God does not act until God the Father issues an instruction to do so. In this case, the message is sent through a heavenly angel. Once again, John hammers home the reality that God the Son is not co-equal with God the Father. God the Father is preeminent. God the Son is essentially the Father's servant. Following the proclamation of the angel, Messiah swings his sickle, we're told, and he harvests the earth. Might this be the moment of the rapture? If it isn't, and instead it's an event that comes later after the rapture, this means they're there, then there are two harvests of believers in the end times. Not one. I can't say that this is impossible. But nothing in Revelation or anywhere else in the New Testament times hints 
two harvests of God worshippers in the end times. And if there are two, then exactly what is this second harvest when the Son of Man swings his sickle? How does this harvest occur? See, the rapture that we're familiar with seems to be about a sudden disappearance. Therefore, it seems to me that the rapture is the only means that God will use to harvest His believers from earth, and I cannot see where the Scriptures reference more than one harvest, more than one rapture. Therefore, it's my conclusion that the harvest of believers with Christ swinging His sickle is just another way of speaking about the rapture. Now hear me. The Bible regularly speaks of events that are done in heaven that might not yet be done on earth. So there might be a sort of spiritual harvest of believers that occurs before a physical harvest happens. I can't say that for sure, but that's a possibility too. I've got to throw it out there, to be honest. Now interestingly enough, some commentators, such as Beale, says that this is not a harvest of believers by Messiah, but rather it's Messiah's judgment of the wicked. That is, Christ is harvesting non-believers. Now, while that can't be completely discounted, I find it odd. Because in the next verse, a different angel shows up, bearing his own sickle, and he gathers what is referred to as clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. And then the verse after that, verse 19, explains that indeed the angel swings his sickle, he gathers up the grapes, but what does he do with them? He throws them into God's great wine press of fury, his wrath. So in the first instance, Christ himself harvests. In the second instance, an angel gathers. Now, look carefully at those verses. What Christ does is to harvest. However, the angel, what the angel does is to swing his sickle, but interestingly, it's characterized as gathering, not harvesting. That may be significant, maybe not. I'm not sure. But moreover, while nothing is said of what happens to the harvest that Christ brings in, at least not right here in these passages, verse 19 clearly says that it is what the angel with the sickle gathers that's thrown into the winepress of God's fury. It is true that Joel chapter 4 uses harvesting and grapes to indicate judgment. And indeed, we do have judgment in that regard here in Revelation. But only as it involves the harvest activity of the angels. The same is not said of those harvested by Christ. You know, harvesting in the Bible is used both in a positive and in a negative sense. So how do we decide how to take the meaning of this harvesting statement about Christ here in Revelation 14? I think we can use his own words that are recorded in a parable in Matthew 13 to settle this dispute because it fits so well with this situation. Let me remind you of Matthew 13, a parable you've heard before. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Just listen to this. Yeshua put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, the enemy came. And he sowed weeds among the wheat. And then he went away. And when the wheat sprouted and they formed heads of grain... The weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, 
didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where have the weeds come from? And he answered, an enemy has done this. And the servants asked him, well then, do you want us to go and pull them up? He said, no. Because if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot some of the wheat at that same time. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds. Collect them first, tie them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now does this not sound like what we just have been reading about Christ and his sickle? The angel and his sickle? One to salvation, the other to the damnation of hell. There's the answer for it, right there. In Revelation 14, the harvest time of Yeshua's parable has arrived. The earth is full of wheat and weeds that have grown up together. Roots entangled at times, aren't they? And as with this parable, there's going to be a positive harvest, and there's going to be a negative harvest. And the two harvests will be simultaneous. The good wheat will be harvested, separated out, placed into Christ's own barn, he says. Now the weeds, they're also going to be harvested. But they will be gathered into bundles and destroyed, burned up. It seems self-evident to me that the harvest performed by Yeshua, the Savior, is of his own. Believers, the wheat that will be stored up in his barn, but the harvest of the angels, that's of the wicked, is to be burned up, the weeds. So, why do some commentators say, no, even Christ's harvest in Revelation 14 is the judgment of the wicked? Well, in addition to a, a certain ambiguity in this passage that allows for little wiggle room such a conclusion is necessary to uphold the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture I mean after all we've been reading about the tremendous tribulation that believers have been undergoing and now comes Christ to harvest so if this is the moment of harvesting believers then this doctrine evaporates that says that the rapture occurs before all this tribulation begins. See the logic? That the angel that gathers the grapes is an act of judgment cannot be disputed since there is no way that a gathering of believers as grapes off of a vine are going to be thrown into a vat of God's fury. What is said next is that this wine press of God's fury is going to be trodden outside the city. That means outside of Jerusalem. And the blood will flow as high as the horse's bridles for a length of 200 miles. Now there's a couple of elements in this statement we need to examine. First of all, why the mention of the gathered grapes being trodden outside the city. What's the point? Now often this is used as the reasoning to say that this is speaking of the battle of Armageddon that takes place in the Jezreel Valley then. Now while Armageddon indeed does take place there, this is not the intent of this statement. Okay. The reason that this the judgment that clearly involves the killing of some untold number of wicked is outside the city of Jerusalem is for the same reason that Jesus was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. The law says that the taking of human blood defiles the ground. In the Old Testament, the term outside the camp is used. That was used it was a term used that originated concerning the wilderness tab tabernacle during the exodus from Egypt when everybody was living in tents. 
They had a camp. They didn't have a town. They didn't have a city. So they used that outside the camp instead of outside the city. However, the effect and the intent is the same. So on Christ's day, crucifixions and other executions had to take place not only outside of the city of Jerusalem precinct, but even a certain distance from the temple in order to not defile it. So the winepress of God's fury, that here means the killing of the wicked, legally must occur outside of the city of Jerusalem to prevent defiling God's holy city and especially defiling the temple grounds. Now the second element involves this enormous amount of bloodshed that is quantified as being as high as the bridle of a horse and extending for 200 miles. For certain, this is not a precise measurement of a volume of blood. I truly don't know how to take this except as an expression of an unprecedented amount of human death and carnage and also perhaps as symbolic of the geographic extent of it. See, in John's day, 200 miles would have been the approximate distance from Tyre up in the north, which represents the extent of Israel to the north in John's day, the Holy Land, to the border with Egypt in the south. That was about 200 miles. So it may be expressing that the entire land, the entire extent of Israel will be a killing ground. And certainly not only the Jezreel Valley. All right. However, the killing is not going to take place in the holy precinct of Jerusalem. That's going to be left out for some reason. Now, let's talk about the Jezreel Valley for a minute. The Jezreel Valley is a triangular depression, if you would, between the hills of the lower Galilee to the north and the hills of Samaria to the south. It's bordered on the east by Mount Tabor, the hill of Moray, and the Gilboa Range. On the west, it's bordered by the Carmel Range. You've heard of Mount Carmel. Its long side runs from Janine to the northern slope of, uh, the Mount, of Mount Carmel. From the northwest to the southeast, it measures about 20 miles. And northeast to southwest, about 14 miles. Now, if you include the Herod Valley stretching to the Bet Shean Valley to the east, you could say it's 30 miles wide. But that's, that's a stretch. 200 miles long is an, even, is an even bigger stretch. I mean, at the most, from Nazareth above the valley in the north to Janine to the south, it's 35 miles. So to say that this is this, talking about this 200 miles is talking about the Jezreel Valley because it speaks of 200 miles. That's just a non-starter. It can't be. It just doesn't match the geography. Therefore, without further information, I think this statement is, is about symbolizing that the blood of God's enemies is going to flow heavily throughout the entire length and breadth of Israel as it exists at that day. With that, let's move on to Revelation chapter 15. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Hope you're getting all this. It's going to be a test. Page 1546 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great and wonderful one, seven angels with the seven plagues that are the final ones, because with them God's fury is finished. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those defeating the beast and his image and the number of its name were standing by the sea of glass, holding harps, which God had given to them. 
And they were singing the song of Moshe, the song of Moses, the servant of, the, of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and wonderful are the things you have done, Adonai, God of heaven's armies. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Adonai, who will not fear and glorify your name, because you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary, that is the tent of witness in heaven, was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, bright linen. They had gold belts around their chests. And one of the four living beings gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the fury of God, who lives forever and ever. Then the sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's Shekinah, that is, from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels had accomplished their purpose. Now verse 1 begins with uh, what I would call the typical kind of symbolism that we've seen all throughout the book. A sign in heaven. A sign of seven angels seven plagues ascribed, described as the final ones. Now recall that we discussed in earlier lessons that in addition to the number seven symbolizing perfection and wholeness that especially in the book of Revelation it can include the meaning, the idea of finality. And here we even get the words that these seven plagues are the final ones. Upon these seven plagues being poured out, God's wrath upon humans, upon the earth, will have run its course. These seven plagues, each one of them associated with a particular angel, are known as the seven bowl judgments. I've heard them called the seven vile judgments. Now some commentators see these seven bowl judgments as but the content of the seventh trumpet judgment. Now I don't see it that way, but such an understanding doesn't harm anything. On the other hand, some take the meaning of the term last or final judgments not as meaning that of the 21 named judgments that the seven bold judgments are the 15th through the 21st ones but rather that this vision John is having is his final vision. And there is truth to it that we need to be very careful not to read Revelation as though it was a daily journal so that everything we read as we thumb through the pages is in precise chronological order. I find much overlap and I have every reason to believe that some of the later visions are meant to supplement some of the earlier ones. However, this is the nature of prophetic apocalypse. The sequence of events can be very difficult to pin down with certainty. And since everything we're reading is still future to us, then we have no way to prove with any detail what the exact order of events is going to be. Now that said, it's my intent to go forward under the assumption that these seven bold judgments are indeed the 15th through 21st of the 21 total judgments that Revelation describes because I just can't find anything substantial enough in the text to cause me to suspect otherwise. Now verse 2 says that John is given a vision of a sea of glass mixed with fire. Interesting. No doubt this is not literal, but rather it's figurative. But figurative of what? What's behind this? You know, it's usual to think of a sea as meaning a body of water. Could be salt, could be fresh. And that is what most Bible commentators and theologians believe is in play here. A sea of salt and sea, uh, or a fresh sea like the Sea of Galilee. Now, since what follows is described, at least partly, as a song of Moses, 
then the nearly consensus thought of Bible academics is that the sea of glass or sea of crystal could be translated either way is equivalent to the Red Sea. Maybe. I have a little different thought about it. At this time in history, even though the temple's been destroyed now for probably two decades by the time of the writing of Revelation, the laver of water present near the altar was given a kind of nickname. It was called the sea. This was a popular name given to it. Because this, I mean, look at the picture of this thing. This giant bronze kettle held so much water, had such a large surface area, it was said to be as large as a sea. This giant water layer, laver, or the sea as it was called, this is not speculation, it was called the sea. It's well recorded in the Talmud. The sea was where the living water used to purify priests and Levites was held. The sea in John's vision is described as being of glass mixed with fire. Now in the Bible, fire is used to both purify and to destroy. But since the water labor called the sea was indeed used to purify then here instead of water, here in Revelation instead of water, we find that fire is being used as that purifying element. But what is being purified now by the fire? The earth and humanity. Why is fire going to be used to purify the earth and humanity if the reference is to a water laver? of living water because God has already used water once centuries earlier to purify the earth and mankind of wickedness it was called the great flood or Noah's flood and he promised what? he'd never do it again would never again purify the earth with water so we witness these believers who are defeating the beast and his image and the number of his name, who are standing, we're told, by the sea of glass. And the believers are holding harps. Which believers hold harps? Levites. Levite believers hold harps. Just as we saw with the 24 elders in heaven earlier in Revelation. This can be ascertained because it was Levites in the temple who were the musicians. Levites were the harp players. So we have this connection between the sea, the living water label, a laver in the, the, the temple, and some Levite temple musicians who are holding harps. These believing Levites holding harps were said to have defeated the beast, his image, and the number of his name. In other words, they were alive during the time the Antichrist ruled. They overcame the Antichrist, the talking image that the false prophet made, and they did not take on the 666 number required to survive but also which speaks of selling allegiance to Satan I see them as martyrs coming out of this terrible time of tribulation it is those spoken of back in Revelation 4.12 they are among those who are to persevere who are to observe God's commandments and to exercise Yeshua's faithfulness even if it means their death and as Revelation 14 further comments it is those who died in the Lord and are blessed as they may now rest from their efforts we find this group of believers 
singing. It says they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now I want to point out here that Moses has again become front and center. Because he is the first mediator of Israel. Yeshua is the second and better mediator. Believers, Christians, take notice here. Both of these mediators are Hebrews. Both of God's mediators are Israelites. And it is in that context that we must understand what is being sung. I must say, you know, it's a great disappointment to me to see how otherwise superb Bible scholars will no doubt notice what I just told you. They'll no- they notice it, they'll even acknowledge it. And yet, they will find a way to discount it in order that Christianity can find a way to ignore its Hebrew heritage and instead pretend as though the church is a Gentile creation. With respect for, but in disagreement with G.K. Beale, I want to quote for you a sad example of this from his renowned Revelation commentary that has so greatly influenced the church. But in this case, it's influenced it in the wrong direction. Regarding verse 3, he says this, I quote, Just as the Israelites praised God by the sea after he had delivered them for Pharaoh, so the church praises God for defeating the beast on its behalf. Like God's people of old, so God's new covenant people praise him by singing the song of Moses and the bondservant of God. However, the song now is about a much greater deliverance accomplished by the work of the Lamb. The saints praise the Lamb's victory as the typological fulfillment of that to which the Red Sea victory pointed. In other words, for Beal, the mention of the song of Moses is pretty much just dismissed as typology. And in fact, the only mediator being praised is the Lamb, Christ. And this is because God's Old Testament covenant people are an old thing of the past, replaced by God's new covenant people, the church. And so, from his perspective, in reality, the defeat of the beast is on behalf of the church, not on behalf of Israel. If something in this passage or in this song somehow lifts up the Gentile church and dismisses Israel, it's sure not visible to me. But this demonstrates how deeply rooted this viewpoint is within Christianity such that a learned and a decent man like Beale could say such a thing and not recognize what has clouded his thinking. You know, new songs in the Bible are typically victory songs, and this one's no different. This is a victory song for Moses and for Christ because both play a role in God's plan of redemption. Now hear this. Man, this gets messed up all the time. This is a song sung by them, not to them. You got that? This is not a victory song to Moses and to the Lamb. This is a victory song sung by Moses and by the Lamb. Just look at, just read it. There it is. So who's it being sung to? Well, clearly the Lamb is not singing a victory song in praise of himself. Rather, it's directed towards God, the Father alone. And it of course draws from scripture passages and events taken from the Old Testament. It's the only Bible they have. The recipient of this song is called the God of Heaven's armies or the God of Heaven's hosts. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, this is one of God's names. Adonai Sevaot. Next, he is called king of the nations. 
Now let's remember that John, being a Hebrew, thinking in Hebrew, immersed in Jewish culture, is visualizing God as being king of the Gentile nations because the Hebrew term goyim means both Gentiles and nations. That God is king of Israel goes without saying. So the song is professing that God is not just king of Israel but also king of all the other nations of the world, all of which are Gentile and thus worship their Gentile gods. This brings us to the conclusion that is the next line of the song. Since God is king of Israel and also king of all Gentile nations, then a rhetorical question is asked. So, who's left that will not fear and glorify his name? And this is a reality. Because despite the multitude of false god systems past and present, in truth, the God of Israel alone is holy. Therefore, since God is king of both the Gentile nations and of Israel, then every nation on earth will come and worship him, since the wicked idolaters and the rebels have been judged and done away with. And this is because God's plan of redemption, here called your righteous deeds, has finally come to fruition. Essentially, this song marks a momentous milestone in the history of history. Finality is the thing. Eternal judgment for the wicked, eternal victory for the redeemed. Verse 5 then returns us to a kind of temple-focused narrative that underlay Revelation 15 when the tent of witness, we're told, the heavenly tabernacle is opened up and we get a short glimpse inside of it. And that's what we're going to look at next week.